0: Okay, so now we're live. Um, So I'm going to recap a little bit of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And uh, I um, have been using a piece, a sort of poem almost, from Dogen Zenji, who's the founder of Soto Zen, from a piece that he wrote called The Genjo Koan. Some of you may know that in Zen practice, there is a practice of working with koans in meditation. And in some systems, there's actually a whole set of koan study questions that you go through with kind of passing and failing and so on. But in the Soto Zen tradition that I studied, it's described that there's only one koan, which is the koan of this moment. And the Genjo Koan, the title of the piece, means basically that. It's the koan of what's happening right now, the koan of what's arising in this moment. So as part of that particular piece of writing that Dogen Zenji did, he has this beautiful line that really sums up and gets kind of an arc of our practice. And he says, to study the Buddha way, to study Buddhism, to engage in this practice, is to study the self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. Some of you may be aware that there is this idea of no-self or non-self, anatta, in Buddhist teaching. So what would it mean to study the self? That's the beginning of the koan. And he goes on to say, to study the self, and I should be clear, study is not about academic study. Nanda Bodhi was telling me she just came from a study retreat <laughs> in which they were really digging into a kind of a studying of suttas. But it doesn't mean cognitive kind of study. This is whole body, whole mind, whole practice, wholehearted study. It really is study as a way of full engagement with whatever it is. In this case, what's happening right now. So to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self, to engage with the self in this wholehearted way, is to forget the self. And then the final line of the poem piece is, to forget the self is to be intimate with all things. It's beautiful. So my intention when I came back from a month of retreat was to kind of share some of my experience on the retreat by way of describing these three lines. But I've already given two talks, and we haven't gotten past the first line. (laughs) So, so, um, you know, it's a whole arc of practice. We might stay here for a while studying the self. So what I thought I would do is say a little bit about what I've said so far about studying the self and then invite Ananda Bodhi to bring in her voice to talk about uh, you know, another angle, another way of looking at what studying the self looks like. And she promised to help to begin to transition us from the first line to the second. So, <laughs> for those of you who are like really? We have to do the first one again? Um, so I've been talking about the last few weeks, sort of three aspects of the self or what we might call selfing the activity of the habitual sense of I, me and mine has everybody got one of those? we don't have to work hard to get that it just naturally comes with being alive in a human body uh, that we have this weird thing called me that we take for real Um, So studying it means looking really closely at this habitual, familiar sense of I, me, and mine, looking so closely that it begins to reveal itself in a variety of ways and eventually begin to disentangle, you might say. So I've been pointing to three aspects of selfing that I got very familiar with on my retreat. Which I described first as a sense of self which is based on our senses. So, a big part of who we take ourselves to be, our sense of I mean mine, comes from our sensory experience of looking, of listening, of tasting, of touching, of what's the other one? Smelling, Smelling. thank you, the others, and thinking, right? So, the mind in Buddhism is a sense door. So the idea is that any moment of experience is coming to us through one of those sense doors. We're seeing something, we're hearing something, we're smelling, we're tasting, we're touching, or thinking about, you know, having a thought, a feeling, a memory, a plan, a story. Moment by moment, that's what's arising. And this sensory self is characterized by what I like to describe as our fundamental reactivity because our sensory experience including the mind is either pleasant or unpleasant it has what we, what we call in Buddhism a vedna, a flavor of valence and so moment by moment we're having a pleasant experience that we like and we want and we try to grab and get more of or we're having an unpleasant experience which we don't like and push away and try to get rid of and so it creates this kind of constant reverberation in our mind, our heart, our body, in our experience, because we're liking, not liking, not liking, not liking all the time. So you get to see that really clearly, right? As you start to pay attention, and you begin to feel the. <laughs> Anubody was telling me this funny story about Biku Bodhi. Don't say it. Okay, she'll say it. Later. <laughs> okay. Anyway. What we begin to discover okay, (laughs) off the tape. What we begin to discover when we pay attention in this way is how fundamentally not satisfying it is. We will never get what we imagine to be the, the big prize which is only pleasant experience and no unpleasant experience. So we are grasping for satisfaction in the wrong places. So that's one domain. The second selfing that I've talked about, is what I call the narrator self. <laughs> the narrator self is the one, there's that voice in your head. Everybody got a voice in your head, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's just going along and saying, um, now I'm doing this, and now I'm doing that, and this is how it is, and now the light like turned red, and now it's going to do this, and maybe I should do that. It's planning, it's scheming, it's remembering, it's worrying, it's doubting, it's like that and different flavors for different people, but it's remarkable, actually, if you start to check it out. Like, how persistent, how constant, and most importantly, we believe it. We actually, we don't even know that it's happening, and it's just chattering away, and whatever it's saying, we are, without mindfulness, just believing it to be true. Mm -hmm. And I told this story, which is worth repeating, of while I was on retreat, walking down the hill and hearing my mind make a comment about a talk that someone had gave, given. It was a comparing comment. And at, I, I was in the retreat deep enough that I, I, I watched my mind, I heard my mind make the comment, and I literally stopped in my tracks because I, I thought to myself, that's not true.
1: Hmm.
0: And it wasn't just not true the comment wasn't just not true about this, you know, the quality of the talk that had been given. It wasn't even true that I thought that, <laughs> and I thought, where did that come from? And I, I realized at that moment that this kind of commentator is just re- imagining it's running the show, and if I don't pay attention, I just think it's true, and it's. It's making stuff up. Right? It's just like taking this vast creative dynamic reality and putting it in a little box with a label on it and going, This is how it is. So when we start to catch on to the narrator, we begin to see through it, our life begins to become more alive. Right? And finally we have the subset of the narrator of the commentator self, which is that I call the narrator self. No, I flipped it. The narrator self, the the commentator self, which is the same thing, but with judgment. Mm -hmm. Everybody know that one. Mm -hmm. So not only am I am I putting labels on things, but I'm putting labels on them with an attached good, bad, or I'm sort of blurring the like, don't like into the what I'm naming, right? So, and then we we not only believe and get boxed in, but we believe and now we become divisive. We become divided. Because we also believe what we think in terms of our opinions and our judgments and our points of view. I'm right, you're wrong. He's good, she's bad, whatever it is. Just take a look at politics and you'll see this everywhere. And we may see it in ourselves in gross or subtle ways, but it, this, that very same process that may start small escalates very quickly and becomes cause of enormous, enormous suffering in our world. So uh, that's the premise that we've talked about. And I've been encouraging people who've reported back to me a bit to um, start to notice for themselves without judging it, just with a sense of like, wow, this is my selfing activity and to start to see how it plays out for you because the more you notice it the less it's got you by the neck the more you notice it the less it's got you you're creating a little space so that in and you can judge it if you want but that doesn't help that sort of closes the space mm-hmm. if you can notice it with this kind of oh wow like huh then you're creating space And it begins to loosen everything up in a way that feels very freeing for us. So I'm going to pause there and let you go.
1: So... uh you know, Pam was talking about the, the, those the thoughts that create this the sense of self, <clears throat> and uh, one thing that I've noticed throughout my life, you know, even before I came across the teachings on no self, was how so often the the inner experience of self and the outer experience of the self being met by the world was, was very different and sometimes very dissonant, and um, so. I think it's something that begins as a child that we, that we have our, our sense of who we are and then there's our sense of who our mother thinks we are which is maybe different and there's that sense of like, oh, it's not quite meeting, it's not quite fitting oh, doesn't she understand me yeah. so it can start very early and then uh, recognising how the the world you know, you all, you're all sitting there looking at me and I'm here with my robes, and my shaved head and my glasses so, and I know some of you, and some of you I don't know. So, you know, there's there's probably all kinds of projections onto me, as you know, and I've got an English accent. So, I've heard in America that, that means that you're very intelligent, and well educated. <laughs> it's lucky for me, isn't it? I just have to speak, and then you'll have that perception. And um, so, you know, we we uh, we project onto people. On how, uh, depending on how they look, and uh, for myself through my life, like when I was when I was uh, young, when I was about, around sort of early teens, I got very large, very big, and um, and that stayed for a few years. and And when I, when I was in school, people would be very mean, and especially boys, very mean, very derogatory, <laughs> because I was fat and they'd make all these kind of mean comments and then uh, when I was uh, maybe 15, 16 I realised like I wanted, I wanted to get my life back I wanted, uh, sort of, things were a little bit off the rails for me and I wanted to get, make a new start and I did this kind of very intensive sponsored, <coughs> sponsored diet <laughs> sponsored slim and lost a lot of weight and then those same people who were, who were really mean when I was large were suddenly very nice to me very charming <laughs> And then I thought, I don't like this. You know, I'm the same inside. It doesn't matter what my body looks like. Same person inside. If you want to be mean to me when I'm large, be mean to me when I'm slim. If you want to be nice when I'm slim, be nice to me when I'm large. It's the same. And uh, so I noticed this kind of, um, this bias based on my, my externals. And, uh, and inside I felt I'm the same person. And uh, and then a little bit later on, and still actually, had it quite recently, I would I would get mistaken for a man, and uh, that was very interesting. So uh, you know, when people thought I was a woman, they would relate to me one way, and when they thought I was a man, they would relate very differently. And that was so insightful. And it's like, you know, it's kind of really nice to be a man. <laughs> <It's> you really, <laughs> really well when you're a man. so <laughs> when I'm a man. But when I'm a woman, they treat me very differently. So it was—it was like um, it just sort of happened that, that there was this um, maybe ambiguity, and I could see the, you know, the world would treat me different depending on on how they perceived me to be. And uh, so, four of us here in the room, <coughs> Hannah and myself, Carmen and Carol, we've just been we still we just come to the end of three days of quite intensive training and undoing racism training. And, uh, you know, this is, this, is, this is a complex, very complex, very deep issue. And uh, the odd and, and crazy thing is that it's based on how we look on the outside and an idea and a projection of what that means and, and, and a value judgment based on what that is and uh, you know whole well it's very very deep in, in, in American culture in many cultures also in British culture but it's a little bit more hidden in British culture but it's very clearly present as part of this culture there's a, there's a, um, a normalisation of, of racism in, in America and so if, if you're white like me you can be in the comfortable end of that not to have to think about it too much, and uh, you can maybe make make uh, little efforts here and there to be a bit more conscious, and then get on with your life, and everything's okay. Uh, if you're black, you, you're probably every day, every time you leave the house, you're aware of it. You're one 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 gentleman was speaking about every time I leave the door, I leave my room, at my house in the morning, I step <coughs> into the sense of unknown. I don't know what I'm going to meet because the world isn't a safe, necessarily a safe place if you have black skin if you have white skin it's also not sure but it's much more likely it's going to be safe and then of course there's all of the various shades between black and white and, and this is all based on on something so, so, you know, skin skin, it's very thin but, and it's a colouring of skin it's kind of an amazing, amazing that we can make so much from that yeah. and uh, so I also I'm a, I'm a Buddhist nun and uh, when I was 20 I first heard about monks in, in Thailand I didn't know that they were Buddhist monastics and I'd been interested in Buddhism for about 6 years or so and when I heard about Buddhist monastics I, I just within 5 minutes I said that's what I want to do I want to be a Buddhist nun, and it was clear, it was like that's it. And uh, I had no idea. I just assumed, you know, there are Buddhist monks and Buddhist nuns, so you know, yeah, that's, I'm just going to do that. And then uh, I was lucky enough to sort of stumble across a monastery in England where there were monks and nuns, and there was a community of both living, both living in the same kind of complex. And so I joined that community of nuns and. Uh, And and lived actually in that community for about 18 years, 17 or 18 years, before coming to America. And what I kept discovering, again and again, was that because of having a female body, I was treated very different than if I'd have had a male body. And before, as I've mentioned, you know, I'd be mistaken for a man. My partner was quite kind of he was male but very quite gender fluid, and and I didn't strongly identify as I'm a woman, I'm a girl, you know, it was just like I'm a person, you know so coming into the monastery there was a very clear like if you're a man you sit here, if you're a woman you sit there if you're a man you can do this if you're a woman you can't do that if you're a man it will get served to you first, if you're a woman you know, it might not get to you but don't worry you know, it's good practice, you know so there's this, this uh, difference and uh, I, I realised okay, well, this is part of the practice you know, I'll just look at this and it's all for liberation. And uh, and yet what I kept coming up against was when I... I would remember the time when I first heard about those Buddhist monks in Thailand and, the, and what I experienced was it was coming from the heart, not from the body, but from the heart. There was this feeling of I want that. I want to renounce. I want to give myself to that. That's what I want to give my life to. And it wasn't... I want to give my body, I want to give my shape, my colour, my hair. Well, you did give me a (laughs) hair. I want to give my heart, my life force to this renunciant path. It was a calling. And I recognised when I went into the monastery that, you know, monks, there were many men my age or so, similar age. Uh, I was in my early 20s when I joined and there was quite a number of monks in their early and mid-20s who had the same calling and the same exactly the same movement of the heart to, to enter the monastery and, and so that's what we all did we entered the monastery and then I kept realising like oh but I'm banging up against this because I'm a woman and he can go through that door and I can't and he can take that ordination and I can't and he gets to and I can't you know, he gets to travel in Asian countries and Thailand the, the kind of homeland of that lineage and, and go on go on uh, long walks in the forest and visit all these different teachers, and I can't because as a woman it, it's not going to work so uh, this was very you know this was something like kept looking at this or you know first of all it, it's like feels wrong, but this is the system I mean it you know I'm not going to. you know maybe I can change it eventually, but it's like this so it got me to really look at the the difference, you know, what is it that, what is that heart's calling, mm. and the, and then the, and then the exterior form mm. that each of us have that we didn't really particularly choose, we've sort of got this one, you know. And what is that? What is that difference? And um, and what I noticed over time is like there's, uh, you know, there's how you see me, and how I see each of you sitting here. But if I turn back and look here, if I turn my attention back and look here, what do I see? I don't see what you see. I don't see my face. I can see my glasses just about. I can see a little (laughs) bit of the nose, but I can't see my face. I can see your faces. And as I see your faces, I realize there's this big space here that's a receptive space that's receiving all of you. And you might notice if you look back at your face, if you open your eyes and look back, you will probably see a big space which is receiving my face. Do you see? If you think about it, it doesn't work. You've got to look. Have a go. You can point. point this way. And point that way. If you point that way, when I point that way, I see all of you. I see the 10,000 things. When I point this way, what do I see? I see my glasses. (coughs) And behind my glasses, I see the space. The space that receives all. Do you see it? So, um, sometimes we can... Sometimes we... All of the thinking and all of the stories that Pam is talking about... They're so strong that we, that we talk ourselves into seeing a face here, seeing a person here, seeing a colour here, seeing a gender here, seeing an age here, all of that. And on, on, on one level, that is, that is here, you know. The body is ageing and so on. But if we really come step back, it's like taking a step back from the skin, a little bit further back, there's the space of awareness that's receptive it's colourless it's ageless it's shapeless it's impersonal it's present and it's always here it's always here and we get we get lost in the storyline and we get stuck in the the image and we get frustrated with the you know how the world is meeting us and then and that's all going you know that's all part of reality of life and then we can step back into this place of open awareness which is receiving everything, which is timeless and that's a great a place of great power great power and great presence and freedom and it's always here it never leaves us, we just forget and we, we get lost in the story and we create ourselves again I don't know if I'm making sense so this is something we can't work it out by thinking. <clears throat> we can't think about it. We can only experience it directly. So to study the self is to forget the self. So it's not about forgetfulness, but it's about when we really look at, well, where is you know, What is this self? Where is it? Where, where can I find it? Where is it located? Then we find ourselves dropping back into this space, which is receiving everything. And that, suppose it feels, and I'm sitting here, I'm feeling this body. I'm feeling a little shivery, actually, right this minute. And I don't know what it's like to feel, to be in any of your bodies. You know, you're feeling your experience from your perspective. And that is unique. It's unique. It's, but, uh, but all of that is also going on within the space of awareness. It's all just arising in a space of awareness, it's here for a while and then it passes so when we find this place the, the irony of it is, we find it we see it and it's like, oh yeah how did I miss that? that's kind of amazing and then we forget, like in ten minutes we forget and we're, we're somebody again mm-hmm. being somebody <laughs> and we're recreating those same old stories in our, in our life, in our relationships, in the world and uh, We can forget even for a long time. But the the beauty of it is this this space is always here, the awareness is always here. So we can remember to to step back into it, to drop back into that place of awareness. And it's not that uh, it would be lovely if when we did that the world suddenly saw us differently (laughs) and treated us differently, but that's not usually the case. The world still thinks we are the skin and the bones and the flesh and the hairstyle, and the height, and the age, and the gender. And it's partially true that we're not only that, we are the awareness, we are the, the great mind. And in that, you know, when I drop back into the, the great mind here, that the awareness here is exactly the same, as, as, as the, the quality of it is exactly the same as any one of you, there's no difference. Only you're looking from there and I'm looking from here, that's all. You get to see, I get to see your face, you get to see my face. <laughs> I don't get to see my face. Yeah. So um, so that place of awareness, it is, as I say, it's a place of great power and great stability. And it's really, really helpful to develop a familiarity with that place because the world is challenging it's challenging to be a human being navigating the world and, uh, and so when we develop that awareness of the, of the space which receives all then we've got a, a st- it's not even strong it's like a stable and, and bright place within which to meet the challenges of life so Because of social structures, um, you know, some people will be, well, people are treated differently. This is what we have been looking at uh, uh, over these three days. <coughs> you know, to be, to have, you know, to various uh, it's to have a, to have a, a dark skin colour, to be, to, to come from a different, a different background, different meaning not. White European in this culture is, uh, you know, you're met differently, and it's really important. So, so, we have this place of awareness to rest into all of us, regardless of any externals, and then it's really important that we don't think of that <coughs> that discrepancy, that prejudice, and and that uh, prejudice. As somebody else's issue, so if we're white, this is not somebody else's issue if anything it's it's more our issue than than anybody's so i was I'm very grateful to Ruth King, who'll be coming soon because, um, <laughs> she uh, she pointed out to me because i there was a small group of us meeting together. Ruth was one of them, and uh, we were talking about race it was kind of impromptu it just came up as an issue and uh and we were talking about having a group of, of people to talk together about race <coughs> and what it means to be, you know, racism and what that means and how that manifests and what we can do about it in our own hearts and minds and in the, in the society. And so I was thinking, oh, great, you know, i get together with a few different people, we'll have a mixed-race group, and we can <coughs> talk about race. And, and Ruth said, and I'm always grateful to her for saying it, she <coughs> said, no, the white people need to get together... Mm the white people need to get together and talk about race because you've got a lot of work to do before you can come to the table. (coughs) She was just very clear. And I didn't get that at first. I was like, I don't really want to meet with a group of white people. (laughs) I want to meet with a mixed-race group, you know. And then she was like, no, because the white people need to understand what we're doing (coughs) to keep recreating this situation. And so a, a small group of us formed to, to speak about this, and we would read a book on, on um, various different books. We read "Waking Up White" and "White Like Me" and uh, a few others, and um, and then discuss, you know, together these white people discussing our blindness and our our clarity and uh, and and what is going on in the society and why, and so. I feel like, you know, after quite a long time now, it's been quite a long time we've been doing this, I'm beginning to have enough understanding, perhaps, if people welcome me. I'm beginning to have enough understanding to come to the table and to talk with people of colour about racism. After doing a lot of work, and I feel like I'm just starting to have enough understanding to be able to do that. So so this space of awareness, which is always here, and it belongs to all of us the same, is, is our place of freedom and and this external is also really important because we can we can go to the ultimate and say well you know it doesn't none of it really matters you know I'm I'm colour blind or you know I don't I don't even believe in race, we all it's all empty or there's no self. We can go to these ultimate places which are on when we're when we're really with them in a true way are true. Not not colour blindness but, but no self and emptiness are true but they're not an excuse for not meeting the, the harm that is done in, in daily life through our ignorance they're not an excuse for that so I would like to pass on the legacy of Ruth King <laughs> and say to everyone here who's white get together and, and discuss and learn about racism in America and, and what you're part of it you know what each of our, each of our not you but each of our part of that is. so that uh, there can be more consciousness and more sharing of the, the burden of, of this um, creation of, of this society. So one thing that, that became very clear at the end of the, these three days just just, just finished at five. One person who who was who was working at Spirit Rock, a woman of colour, was saying she just expressed how how heavy it has been to hold the the protection of of of, of white people. This sense of like we've got to protect white people from having to hold this this reality. It so touched me when she said that. It's like oh my goodness, you know, this woman's been holding that so that we don't have to feel it. That's that's not right so we have to actively seek out what does it feel like what does it feel like <coughs> to be part of a racist culture because we, we are as, it, as living in America what is it like, I'm not even American but I live here and I feel this is as much mine as anybody else's in this country so what is it like, what does it feel like what does it feel like to take on some of that burden that those, that person is carrying or those people are carrying and take it on myself and feel the duke of it, you know it's an act of compassion and of and of wisdom, really. So, uh, so I wanted to point out the, the, the place of awareness because that's the, that's the place where we can we we have strength, but we don't have to defend ourselves. But we're the same as everybody else. And then there's the the manifest, the sentient, the conventional experience, where. We all hold different places, different places of privilege, different places of um, access and agency, and it's really important, for, especially for the white folks in the room, which is not you know, it's, it's significant, but nice to see that it's not necessarily a complete majority. <laughs> um, <coughs> we learn about it, that we educate ourselves about it, so that we're not unintentionally causing harm. Which we will be doing if we don't if we're not aware. It's kind of inevitable. So sorry if that's a little bit of a lecture, but uh, I wanted to just convey that. The, those particularly those two places of you know the 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 experience of being in the world with this particular form, whichever whatever it may be, and the, the, the place of emptiness and presence that's always Accessible. So I'll for that tonight, and we have a few minutes for Q and A. If anyone would like to share or ask anything, very happy. Yes. <laughs> there it is. Mm. Yes, it's, it's a structural system, you know, where basically, you know, if you're white, doors open for you that won't open if you're not white in, in this culture. So it's not about, um, it's not about, it's not just about saying us and them and I'm better than them and, you know, but it's about a, a system, a, a systemic a setup of, of privilege and, and lack of privilege and, and that's something that I my eyes were opened to it in my community in, in England because that's it took me a long time to really understand it but that's really what, what was going on is a paradigm of there are people who have privilege and access and, and are the norm, the dominant culture I think is the usual term and then there are the people who are not that for whatever reason so for us it was because we were women renunciants If we were not renunciants, if we were lay women, we we would have had much more. That that, that was a completely different story. You you belong in in that respect. But as a a renunciant woman, no, you don't belong. There's not a proper place for you. We try and kind of squeeze you in there on the side, but don't get too comfortable. So it's a a paradigm of of dominance and subordination was the word Ruth used. And... uh, that plays out, and it's and it's never the case. If you look carefully, it's never the case that that there's people of colour who are in that who are in that dominant position, and, and white people in a subordinate position. I don't think you'll find that in this culture. So we are talking. We're not talking about individuals. We're not talking about um, you know sense of us and them. But we're talking about privilege. We're talking about an uneven table, profoundly uneven. So that. Everything rolls to the same people again and again and again, and those other people keep—it's not—it's not getting there. Does that make sense? I think it can
0: vary a, lot, a great deal on what environment you're <coughs> coming from. Um, there are places in this country where that doesn't always exist, and in fact, it could be the reverse.
1: Could you tell me where they are? <laughs> where they
0: are? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like Brooklyn, instance? Of <coughs>
1: what did you say? Brooklyn. Brooklyn. I haven't
0: been to Brooklyn. So I think one of the one of the things that I heard in the course of the training that we were just in is that <coughs> part of the dominant culture paradigm is to see everything from an individual standpoint. So, and uh, particularly those of us who are white don't like to think of ourselves as racist because we have an associated... Racist means bigot, and bigoted bad. Like <clears throat> mean, ugly. Um, the, we came up with a bunch of words during our training. It's like quickly goes to racist is like Donald Trump, KKK. <laughs> so, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about um, it. I think you might consider that a person of color could be bigoted or more bigoted even than a white person. That's possible. But racism is a system. Mm -hmm. And it's a system of power and privilege which consistently has white at the top and dark at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And so even in Brooklyn, I have a daughter who lives in Brooklyn. Um, White is at the top and brown is at the bottom. And this is, this is true in the U.S. It's also true in other places. But it's very, it requires a kind of shift in perspective because I think many of us are used to I, me, mining. We're used to saying, wait, I'm not like that. And nobody is saying you or me as a white person or a non as a white person is that. But we are saying that there's a system of that and that it's very common. It took me a long time to wake up to actually as a as a white person carrying the privilege of having the the norm for white be at the top, I didn't see it. I didn't have to. I just went along with my business. And it wasn't until I began to listen very closely to people who were darker than me. I'm a dark skinned white person, right? But still there are people who are quite a lot darker than me. And to hear their stories. To hear about the fear of what's needed before leaving the house. To hear about the guy in our group who talked about when he was commuting from San Francisco to Sausalito over what, four years, maybe? Is that right? Oh, right? He is a black man. He got pulled over by the police 32 times. 23. 23 sorry, I do a little <laughs> number. 23 times. Mm-hmm. That's a lot more than I would get pulled over, period. So, But I don't have to think about that, because I'm a white person. So it take, it's a kind of educating ourselves. And there's a, there's a, I love the way that you presented it, but there, for me there's something very, right at the heart of the Dharma here, which is that waking up, having real insight, is being willing to see something from a completely different perspective. And when we are entrenched in our particular views and beliefs and perspectives, then we only see things one way. And at least one of the one of the insights I had on retreat was insight itself always, is always a surprise. <laughs> like I'm looking over here, and it comes in over here. <laughs> so this this turn of perspective is part of a waking up. It's actually, we have to, we we come to see things differently. And I know for myself, there's a lot of defensiveness. Like, not me, and really Mm -hmm. it's that bad? Mm -hmm. And it was a kind of slow learning, uh, both book learning and relational learning, for me to slowly begin to turn. And the the beauty in the turn was that I think I've seen things more clearly. You know, really seeing what's true instead of just a half view. But also, as you were saying so beautifully, something happens in the heart when I allow myself to see the level of suffering that I was blind to. My heart breaks. It in a really good way, and particularly if the pain that I see is pain of toward people who I love, who I deeply care about, then it becomes our problem, not their problem, and not something I'm willing to continue to be blind about. Because we all suffer for this, just in different ways. Uh, So there are different roles we play in trying to shift uh, something that has been excruciatingly painful as, as a... Historical part of our country. Um, and continues and, to be. And continues, continues to, be. to be. We see it's happening, you know, blasted over the news at this particular moment in history. We have really a moment here uh, to all use the news to wake up. You know, and to wake up, as Ananda Bodhi said so beautifully, by going, huh? <laughs> what's happening over here? And it's, it takes a lot of humility. And it's uh, quite beautiful as the heart starts to crack. Mm-hmm. And I'm aware that I um, ran over last time, so I'm gonna, we have to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a short little do want to do short. Short dedication? No. Yeah. Yeah. And in the dedication, Erica, who's one of our um, oh, yeah. members has surgery on Friday. Mm-hmm. And if we could just keep her in our... De- yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yes, Thank you. Thank you, Maggie especially for Erica
1: for her Mm -hmm. healing and uh, for all beings may we all realise our true nature our true potential and may we live from that true potential so any merits that we may have generated through our practice through uh, refraining from doing harm that may have arisen in our minds through actively doing good in the world through body, speech or mind and through purifying our hearts and minds through the meditation practice, any merits that may have been accumulated this day and throughout the whole of our lives, may these merits be shared generously and abundantly with all beings.